0: Welcome to Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast from Discovery Park of America in Union City, Tennessee. Today's episode is brought to you by the West Tennessee Delta Heritage Center, home of the Tina Turner Museum.
1: Thank you, Dawson, and welcome, everybody, to Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast where we explore the history, the people, and the culture of our home here in West Tennessee. I'm your host, Scott Williams. So today's guest is author Philip Jett, who was born here uh, in Union City. He's uh, an incredible writer, and he writes just the kind of books that I uh, Loved to read. He was a corporate and tax attorney advising Fortune 500 corporations and some of the biggest names in sports and inter- entertainment. But then he retired and turned to writing. He is now a New York Times acclaimed author and an international speaker. Welcome, Philip. So, um, Philip, I know we talked about your last book, um, the Taking Mr. X on the kidnapping of an oil giant's president. Uh, how did That's how did the uh, uh, promotional tour and all that go for that book? Was it a lot of fun to talk about?
2: It was okay, you know. The it it was during COVID, so it was impacted greatly um, during COVID. Uh, and it, you know, to tell you the truth, it wasn't a lot of fun because of that fact. Um, you know, one of the perks of writing books is to get to meet people. Uh, you know, and talk with people like yourself, and to travel. And um, the second book, the first book, I had that the the death of an heir. Um, you know, I premiered it in Denver, and went to Colorado Springs and Boulder and that sort of thing. Really saturated Colorado because of the topic, which was about Adolf the III. And that was a blast. That was a lot of fun. You know, I was on TV out there, radio. Print, and uh, but with the second book, and you know we delayed it, but COVID just hung in there, you know, and it wouldn't give up, and so I didn't have as much fun. I did a lot, a lot of online things, um, but not uh, travel. It was I, I don't think uh, I'm trying to remember. I went up to New Jersey later on and hung out with some FBI folks, and uh, we had a party up there, and uh, but that was about it. You know, there wasn't a lot going on for that book. Which is a shame, but hopefully COVID's in the closet for a while.
1: Well, there was a there was a, a documentary. I'm trying, not a documentary. Uh, a movie. I think it was on HBO about uh, the kidnapping of uh, some uh, million, some billionaire's grandson. And I thought about you because I thought, hey, yes, that was it. That was it. And I thought, hey, this would make a good a good uh, movie as well. So,
2: yeah, you know the what. I've, because I really enjoy meeting people. Uh, and I think that's something that I've done as I've grown older, because when I practiced law, that was not the case. Um, but as a writer and having grown older, I really enjoy meeting people. With The first two books being true crime, which were kidnapping, murder. Families did not want to talk to you. You know, if if they were the victim's family or the perpetrator's families, they didn't want to talk to you. They just wanted you to go away. Uh, they were trying to put it behind them. But I met a lot of FBI, local police, state police, diplomatic service people, those kind of people. And I made friends, lasting friends, you know, um, uh, and now with The strand in the Sky, which is a historical book about. Uh, You know, I tell it from the perspective of the crew members and the passengers and the families of those folks that I, you know, I interviewed because I went back and I got passenger lists for these planes. There's four planes involved in the book and I got passenger lists. Then I did a genealogy search uh, for all the passengers and I got names of people and mailed letters and made contact with several people that were the children, you know, even though the children now are in their 70s and 80s um and they sent me pages from diaries, copies of documents, photos, all kinds of things. So you know I pick out about 12 individuals that I follow throughout the book and um, and even more mentioned, there's a lot of folks that are mentioned. Well, these people have embraced me um, like never before. I'm not accustomed to, you know. They're thanking me for telling the story. They're so pleased, you know. I'm debuting it in San Francisco on Saturday at the old Pan Am terminal on Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, of all places. And most of these people live in the Bay Area, so they're coming. They're bringing family. It's and it's almost like Rather than a book premiere, it's more like a tribute or celebration, almost, of these people that are in the book and their family. And I have never had so much uh, in the way of, you know, nice things and gratitude coming from these folks. And it's really humbling.
1: So for folks who are listening who aren't familiar, your book is Stranded in the Sky. Luke himself here, our producer, is a pilot, and so he's really interested in in, uh, things about planes. So tell us a little bit about exactly what the book is about.
2: Yeah, the title is Stranded in the Sky, the untold story of Pan Am luxury airliners trapped on the day of infamy. So it's by its very nature a war book, but it's not... It's focus is not a war book. Um, so what happened was we all we're all familiar, hopefully, with December 7, 1941, the Empire, Empire of Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. But they also attacked many islands as part of a coordinated effort on that same day, you know, including Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Guam, Wake Island, Midway. I mean, you name it, they were attacking it. And it was all within a few hours of each. Um And they were attacking American, British, and Dutch um, bases. Well, Pan Am, Pan American Airways at that time, was the only airline in, in the world that flew internationally across the oceans. They flew across the Atlantic and the Pacific. And at that time, World War II in Europe was already going on. So they had curtailed most of their flights to Europe, and they were focusing on flights to you know the Orient to New Zealand, Australia, uh, Hawaii, uh, that type of thing, and these planes were looked super luxurious by today's standards. They were, first of all, they were about three levels high. Um, they had a bar. They had four course meals. They had berths like sleeping on a train or a um, passenger um, uh, liner, steam liner, and. They had um, just all these amenities, uh, and they had sofas, and and it's hard to imagine. Now, you know, the book has sixty photos, which are dispersed throughout where it's relevant, and to see these planes, it was just amazing to me. First of all, I did not realize that Pan Am flew over the oceans in the thirties and into the forties, and. Um, that these planes were available, and they were really only available for the wealthy. Uh, for instance, to fly from San Francisco to Hong Kong and back in 1941 would cost about two grand just for one seat. To, in that today's dollars, that's about thirty-five grand, and um, if you can imagine. And even more than that, some of these folks, if they were traveling as a family, would would reserve an entire cabin, which might be. You know, twelve grand in in nineteen forty one dollars, um, and and even more than that, there was a deluxe suite on the tail that had its like a its own bed, its own uh, sofa, love seat, chairs, bathroom. That and that was about a hundred grand in nineteen forty one dollars. Um, you know, it, it's just astounding. So you had celebrities, you had you know standard oil uh execs you had you know the the, t- the top people uh on these planes so they so they're taking off on december 7th or you know december 3rd 4th 5th uh venturing out over the pacific and it's like woohoo you know we're going to these exotic places we're you know having a great vacation just like people do today and the next thing you know the pilot tells the passengers you know, everything's being attacked and we're right in the middle of it, uh, out over the Pacific ocean. So now you go from, you know, all this hoopla and excitement about your destination to how are we going to survive this? And, um, you know, and that's really the focus of the book. And I, as I say, I pick out four planes. I really concentrate on two primarily. And, um, and I follow um, the passengers and, you know, picked out about a dozen passengers in particular and give you their background and their family situation and their children at home and their wife at home or whatever, you know, there's all these concerns. So I try to build up anticipation about what may happen to these individuals. And at the same time, I'm I'm leaking in the Japanese throughout the book. So it, I... I I compare it to kind of like the Jaws, you know, where the music starts. You know, when the book starts, everybody's boarding these planes, everything's fun. So you go three or four chapters in, the next thing you see is that Japanese have left Japan headed for these islands. And so, you know, now you've got the, um, the Japanese out there and people unbeknownst are out there having fun. And so you go three or four more chapters and having fun on these beautiful plains and these islands and the Japanese are getting closer, you know. And so so it, it finally converges uh, with Pearl Harbor and then the aftermath of not only Pearl, but all these other islands. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but for instance, out of the four planes, one is shot up uh, pretty badly I think it had twenty three bullet holes in the side, um, and the other was bombed and burned, um, and um, and some of these folks could not get back. The, it's funny the crew members and the surviving planes would they were that was the focus because the United States government military is like we need pilots and we need planes. You know, forget about passengers. You know, it's like. This is what we need right now. Uh, so try your best to get back. And, and I um, read
1: where I read where there were as many crew members as there were passengers.
2: I know it was it was crazy. Um, these planes could hold up to seventy two passengers, but they rarely did because if they were flying overnight, you had birds, so <clears throat> you could only have about thirty six passengers who could sleep in these because the. The chairs and everything would fold into, you know, sleeping accommodations, which were very nice. You know, each berth had its own window, its own light, its own intercom, its own music, you know, speaker and and all that sort of thing. Um, So it wasn't like they were just throwing these people in, you know, it was very nice. So they couldn't fly, unless it was a day flight, they could only fly about 36 max. And even then um uh the flights weren't always full and so you would have um uh, sometimes on these flights you only needed about five or six crew members but they would do a double shift so they might have 11 or 12 on there so some could sleep cuz if you're flying from San Francisco to the Orient it might take 5 days and and these planes could not make it you know back then the the Technology was such that they had to island hop and Pan Am, which is discussed in the book and also photos, Pan Am went on to like Midway. They would island hop from San Francisco to Midway <clears throat> to Wake Island, to Guam, to Manila, to Hong Kong. So they would hop and they would spend the night at each location. And so for the islands that didn't have nice hotels, Pan Am built them. Pan Am built Five-star hotels on these little. So you have Wake Island, which is about two and a half square miles of area. It's a tiny little island, and it's got this five-star hotel on it. You know that nobody goes to other than Pan Am passengers. Um, so the book really is about the, not only the planes, but in the islands and the passengers. But it's also about, of course, the attack and and the aftermath and the survival and how do we get home. So there's a lot going on in this book that I I wanted readers to get because I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable about history. But yet I didn't know Pan Am flew overseas then. I didn't know how they did it. I didn't know about these planes, that sort of
1: thing. Well, that's one of my questions is I'm curious at what point did you... A, hear about it or read about this particular incident and what sparked your thought, this might make a good book, and what went into deciding whether or not to pursue that idea?
2: You know, it's a great, great question because my first two books just kind of fell in my lap. The first book, Death of an Air, just fell in my lap, and it had never... I like to write about things that have not been written about, and the the first book had not, the second... The third book, Strand in the Sky," has not been written about as comprehensively as I've done, and only certain planes. Uh, I've thrown in four all four planes, and with passengers. You know, nobody ever had passenger names and that sort of thing. Uh, but the way it came about, and it may sound somewhat snooty, but it, it, I was um, in Greece in night in two thousand nineteen, pre-COVID and i'm sitting on a beach and um i'm thinking i've got i got to write another book um what would this be about and out in the uh, ocean there was a little island and it was a some type of tourist spot so this little tourist boat would go back and forth all day as i'm sitting there and i'm like you know i'd like to write a book about an island cuz it's something you know something that involved an island it was just that simple so sitting on a beach in greece i take out my f- Cell phone, and I start researching. You know, technology is crazy. You know, so I start researching this, and I find um, these islands, and then I come across Midway, and I'm like, Yeah, we all know about Midway, you know, in the World War II. But then I saw um, Pan Am, and I'm like, Wait a minute, what's Pan Am got to do with Midway in 1941? And so that opened up the the curiosity and the digging and and coming across the story, it, it, was, it was just as simple and strange as that. That I just said to myself, "I want to write a book about an island," and then it evolves into to this book.
1: So, um, yeah, it, what's interesting is uh, there's really not a ton out there about this topic, and I can't think of anything that would make a better movie, right?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking that. You know, I need you as a manager, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've had some. You know, I've had, um, and there are a few uh, blurbs on the book, but there are are authors who write a lot of World War II books and a lot of military books, and and one even said, "Who who would have thought of this?" You know, they're kind of like we, and uh, another um, author who's a bestseller. He said, "This is the rare rarest of books. It's a." an untold story in World War II. He said, how many of those are out there? You know, and uh, so I was fortunate. And, you know, it, I just came across the connection of Pan Am to Midway and my mind clicked be- only because of my ignorance not knowing Pan Am was an international airline, you know, from the 30s. Um, and, um, and one thing led to another. And once I saw they were involved in the attack. My mind snapped and it's like, okay, this would be a great story from the passenger crew member standpoint, you know, as a survival of, you know, of the attack. Well, you think about, you know, you think it was a,
1: the, the whole experience was harrowing for the people that were on uh, the plane. I know the Pacific Clipper um, their record for the longest commercial flight by mileage still stands today. So it was a long way to go even today. Uh, yeah,
2: you mileage. know, it's funny. Each plane had its own story. Uh, and some were in more danger than the other. And, and But all of them accomplished things that, you know, it's funny. And I say this in the epilogue, I believe, that if they had done it, um, at a time where war didn't start, they probably would have gotten a ticker tape parade in in New York, you know, because they were setting all these amazing, as you say, the Pacific Clipper flew, you know, around the globe uh, pretty much at a time where that was not done by a big lumbering commercial plane. You know, you had the, the Amelia Earhart's and and these specialized planes that were doing that. And these people... You know they they didn't have tools. They've had to fashion their own tools, and they pick up drums of oil along the way, and they fly on automobile gasoline for a while, and just all this crazy stuff that today you wouldn't you wouldn't do. But each plane had its own uh, story, and um, and like the plane you're talking about, the Pacific Clipper, uh, the first officer I spoke with his son. And he said, you know, my dad didn't think much about it at the time, but as he grew older, he really realized what they had accomplished. And, um, and you know, and at his death, he was very proud of what they had done. And as you say, it still stands, um, you know, and that was at a time where you didn't have satellite imagery, you didn't have weather reports, you didn't have all the stuff, the support that you have today.
1: Um. D- I know it was a long long time ago were there any little kids on the planes so that, is there anybody still alive
2: There is thanks for asking and he's going to be at the signing believe it or not um in San Francisco and I'm really excited about it um there's two gentlemen in, in fact um there's one gentleman there's he's probably close to 100 uh who's going to be there and the, But uh, one that I really uh, communicated a lot with, his father was Pan Am's manager on Wake Island. So his job, his father's job was to make sure all the uh, navigation equipment, antennas and, and everything was operational. He would greet the planes when they landed, that sort of thing. So you had an island um, that was pretty sparse. And but and certainly no families, but his family lived there. So this gentleman who's going to be at the event, he was a toddler at the time. And he was there. He he said that they were evacuated two weeks before the attack. He and by he they he meant he and his little brother and his mom, his dad stayed. And um, so, you know, he he has no memories of it but he was physically there and i said you know i think you're probably the only person on the planet who can say that that you were on wake island in the beginning of december 1941 and you know were was a part of all of that you know his dad escaped um and and they eventually made it back to san francisco but yeah there there are those people and um then there are those that were you know uh, their dad continued to fly for pan am uh even you know flying um 707s and and that sort of thing so pan am was a part of the family even in later years so um we're going to take a quick
1: break but when we get back um i want to talk a little bit more about your process as a writer and how you do what you do
0: The West Tennessee Delta Heritage Center in Brownsville, Tennessee at exit 56 off I-40 offers an authentic Southern experience showcasing the history and culture of rural West Tennessee. Inside, visitors can learn about the history of cotton, explore the scenic and wild Hatchie River, and get to know the legendary musicians who called West Tennessee home. Also located on the grounds is Flag Grove School, the childhood school of Tina Turner, and the last home of blues pioneer Sleepy John Estes. To learn more about the center, visit WestTNHeritage.com.
1: I hope you're enjoying the Real Foot Forward podcast from Discovery Park of America. If you are, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your host, Scott Williams, and our guest today is author Philip Jett. So it's the the topic of uh, your book is so uh, interesting. It's something that you don't read a lot. Uh, and you mentioned the photos. And I'm really curious about your process that you go through uh, when you write a book like this. I know uh, uh, you and I are both fans of Eric Larson. And, you know, I think The Devil in White City is probably one of my favorite mm-hmm. um, books. Um, and he is a real big, been a real big inspiration for me and the stuff I write. Um, and so I have my process, I'm assuming everybody has a different one. Tell me a little bit about how you go from sitting on an Island in Greece and thinking, Hmm, this would be a good book to, uh, publish.
2: Yeah. Well, they, first Eric Larson. Yeah. He's a favorite of mine and also an inspiration. And it's funny. He is a, uh, Twitter friend of mine and he actually sought me out, which was strange um and so he and i communicate occasionally about things and he was the one who told me that this is the rarest of birds a story uh that has not been told about world war ii so he's been very kind oh my um, gosh i'm so jealous that's amazing <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, you know, but, Uh so i'm you know i'm gonna continue to suck up to him and i'll send him a free book and whatever I can do. But no, he, he's really good. He's been doing this for a long time. And, you know, there were a couple of his books that when I first started writing, I thought I wanted to write. And Devil in the White City is is was one of them. And uh, the one in the Galveston, uh, Isaac Storm, I think, was another one. Um, so I'm like, dang, this guy's beating me to the, you know, punch, or, you know, so, but I don't view him, certainly I'm not a threat to his career in any way, but um, I view him as, and one, one line I used yesterday, I was on television in Nashville, believe it or not, uh, for, you know, a whopping maybe five minutes to plug the book, and I brought up Eric Larson, and I said, you know, because someone asked me, they asked me in the interview about my research, and I remember hearing Eric Larson say, Someone asked him, I think I actually read it on, on um, Twitter, that do you have a staff that does your research for you? And he's like, I have a staff, but why let them have all the fun? And that's certainly me. I really enjoy the research. And I think that just comes naturally for me. I learned a lot of methods of research, practicing law, of course, but it's the curiosity and it's the wanting to find that fact that no one else has found. And, um, and just, you know, wanting to put a book out there that nobody can say, Hey, this is wrong. You know? So I'm, I'm a real nerd when it comes to my research. And for this book, um, you know, you put feelers out and you try to see what you've got. Uh, And a lot of times, you know, the agencies you reach out to or the, archives are not helpful. So you have to adjust. And this one, um, you know, I, I took the time I flew to New York, uh, San Francisco, Miami, DC, I did the Library of Congress, I did the National Archives, I did, you know, um, airport museums, I did every, you know, anything I could find Miami has all of the University of Miami has all of uh, Pan Am's records. Uh, when Pan Am went out of business, they were donated to the University of Miami, so those are there. So I spent a lot of time, and and the, you know, with this story, there's a there was a mountain of of stuff, and so you have to decide how am I going to organize and what's my story? You know, what how am I going to hone this down into something that's manageable? And for me, I'm like, okay, I got four planes, let's do four stories. And so, my first draft, I wrote following each plane. Well, um, I quickly found that number one, the book was too long, and number two, it was, you know, difficult to keep up and and know who you're with at the time. The book is unwieldy. Um, So, even though I loved every word of it, I had to cut it. Um, And unfortunately, some of the people I interviewed, you know, their parents were cut down to maybe a just a mention instead of being a character. And I had to break that to them. But um, so, it, you know, it depends on the book, you know, with Coors, um, my first book, Death of an Ear, uh, it took a while because I had to go through the FBI archives and they're very slow. And then they redact a lot of things, but then they don't redact. Um, and then you have to go to courts and libraries and all kinds of things. And this one it was actually a little easier because, I, you know, I'll do a plug here. I used Ancestry.com, uh, which I didn't realize the power of that because I would go over to like Vanderbilt University here and try to get newspapers from South China and all kinds of things, you know. And it was coming up empty. And But Ancestry has so much, and that's where I got the passenger list. I tried to get the passenger list from government agencies and that was just not going to happen. And and I'm like, believe it or not, I got them off Ancestry. And then you look up the folks and you follow them and then you send them letters. So that, I, I hate to keep doing a plug, but Ancestry was invaluable to me. I could not have written this book without that, that site. And um, so anyway, I don't know if that answers
1: yeah, yeah. I'm also curious. So when you're researching, um, do you just like, you know, I found my phone to be a really valuable tool to take pictures of articles and, you know, save stuff. I end oh, up yeah, with boxes oh, and yeah. boxes. And then do you find yourself somewhere needing something that you know you have somewhere and you spend hours looking back through stuff? Or are you organized enough in the front end where you don't have to do that?
2: No, no, I'm just like that. And it's scary that your mind is able to do that. Because you'll be like, <clears throat> you'll be writing and you're like, you know, I know I've read something about this particular thing. And now I know what did I do with it? You know, did I photo do a photo, you know, screenshot? Did I download it? Did I whatever? Did you know a librarian send it to me? Did so then you start scouring. Uh, and most of the time I do a good job with folders and have everything but every once in a while something is out there you know it, it's gone rogue it's crawled out of the folder and it's gone somewhere and it drives me crazy you know i'll be up all night if i have to to find it but were there any
1: kind of uh like other than finally finding the passenger list on ancestry were there any kind of like aha moments where you did, like fireworks went off for you
2: um you know um yeah i'm sure sh- I'm sure there was. And I think a lot of times, you know, my process always has been write the first draft and then interview. Um, I don't interview before I write the first draft because I'm not sure what I'm going to need. And usually the interviews are not they don't give you a lot of information. They give you anecdotes. They give you feeling. They give you personality. They give you that stuff that you can insert later. Um, so, um, every once in a while, someone would tell me something that's funny or, you know, about their dad or, or, you know, um, for instance, one guy, his mother, uh, on the Pacific Clipper, um, you know, they didn't hear from them for over a month. I think it took 31 days. So mom, you know, he's like, mom was sitting at home with two kids, you know, didn't know where dad was and nobody was going to tell her. And. And her quote, which I got was, you know, heck, this was, there was a war on, you know, it, you know, it, it, it was uh, a military secret. It it was so funny because the, like today versus then, it was just accepted that you don't have a right to know, you know, and you just got to wait. And, and you're one of many, you know, who's serviceman or whatever out there. Um, and I found, you know, so things like that I would find interesting just from the culture of the time um, versus today. And, you know, I, I found some interesting things that that were not pertinent to the book. Uh, for instance, when I was in San Francisco, I was at the National Archives out there, and they had a lot of original, um, you know, you had to put the white gloves on. They had a lot of original uh, telegrams and things between Roosevelt and Pearl, and um, you know about the attack and 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 things like that. Um, that I f- I just found, you know, it was just amazing to me to see it and and like wow, this telegram was actually sent. And and what's also funny is there were telegrams about the Clippers. For instance, the uh, Philippine Clipper was flying back to Pearl. Came back, um, let's see, came back the next day. Um, and there were telegrams being sent around Pearl saying, Don't, you know, the Philippine Clipper is coming in around 11 a.m. Do not shoot it down, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And so you're seeing these telegrams, and I put stuff like that in the book that, you know, I, it, it's not particularly that important. It's just, it makes you, feel a part you know of that moment you know um when you see things that are genuine well, I have
1: a I have a promotion idea for you. We we both talked about Eric uh, Larson, another writer that really his book really kind of changed my life in a lot of ways. Is James L. Swanson wrote "Manhunt: The Twelve Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer." I don't know if you've ever <laughs> read that, but if you haven't, I really recommend you get it and read it. Um, okay. Back in two thousand seven, at this point, but they actually at the museum where I would eventually go work long before I went to work there. They had an exhibit based on his book about Lincoln. And and honestly, seeing that exhibit and buying the book is what made me want to start researching history and writing about it. And so it really changed my life. Um, I think I know that your opening, your your big opening party is at the Treasure Island Museum, which um, for those who don't know, uh, part of the original Pan-American Terminal uh, from San Francisco Bay is there, so but that would be a great exhibit. Your book would be a great inspiration for an exhibit for them to um, to mount for the public. Yeah. Well, you
2: know they're they're going to keep my book there, um, and it's funny somebody just built a replica of the China Clipper. Uh, a gentleman that's almost hundred years old is going to be there. Uh, he's not a part of my book, but we're doing this kind of. He's doing it kind of the. What are you Like the, the band that warms up, you know, he's 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 doing his thing with and they're unveiling this China Clipper, which is meticulously done. It's amazing, you know, and he actually saw the China Clipper when he was young. So uh, he's going to be there. And but, you know, they they've told me that they want to keep my book there available. And there's you know, there's the San Francisco Museum at the airport. They have a lot of Pan Am uh, stuff as well, and they're going to do the same, um, which is an honor for me that, you know, they make incorporate my book as part of their story to tell. Um, and um, Garden City, New York, um, is doing the same. Um, that's where Charles Lindbergh took off uh, f- on his famous flight, and they've made a museum there, and Pan Am is a big part of it as well, so I stopped by there uh when I was in New York and uh but I must say um and this is for Luke I know he's listening um who is the pilot um there's um uh two weeks ago I took a flight aboard a 1928 Ford tri-motor um flew around for half an hour out you know near Nashville and it was do that at Tullahoma yeah, that's great. It was it was a treat.
0: Cool. I was trying to make it out there to do the same thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, Pan Am used those early on uh, for its uh, South and Central America flights out of Miami. They never used them, of course, because um, they were short-range planes. But it's funny. Uh, I was just sitting around, and, and that came across my desk that they were going to be out here giving flights for, you know, they, they go across the country. And they're, they're at each location for about three days. So I got aboard this thing and my older son's like, dad, is your will in order? You know, and I'm like, no, nah, this thing's great. And, um, so, you know, and it was great. I, it was a thrill for me. Um, just the sound of the, you know, three big, you know, propellers and everything and the, and the seating and everything, you know, the wood grain interior, and it was all a lot of fun. And. But, uh i can only imagine what it was like to fly on these planes but um uh so yeah i got to do that and that was a that was a big thrill that's awesome so
1: luke has a really interesting project that has to do with airplanes and photography um we want it's not time to divulge that yet it's still a big secret. Oh. But- But I do want to know, tell us a little bit about all the pictures that you have in the book. What was the process like for gathering those together? And how'd you pick uh, which ones to include and which ones not to?
2: Yeah, good question. You know, and I'll revert to my earlier books. Um, For instance, my first book, um, I had a little secret because most, you know, as you know, most uh, photos are copyrighted now, you know, and and they're owned and you have to license them and all that sort of thing. So a lot of times you're thwarted in your mission to get photos. But in the course case, for instance, uh, the Denver Post has lots of photos, but they were not going to let me use them for free. And fortunately for me, unfortunately for the newspaper, the Rocky Mountain Times had gone out of business uh, not long before and had donated all of their newspapers and photos to... The Denver Public Library. So I was able to access those photos for free, just, you know, that you just mentioned in the caption for each photo that it was, you know, came from the Denver Public Library. On well, this, yeah, exactly. And um, in this case, um, you know, I having gone to so many museums and then Miami having uh, most of this stuff was, you know, fair use. It was, uh, had been part of the records. It was not owned by a newspaper or Getty or any of that sort of thing. So it was, you know, all I had to do was figure out what photos I wanted, where they were located, shoot an email and say, hey, I would love to use these photos. I will credit your organization or your museum. And they were all very lovely and said, of course. And uh, although I, I, I I won't name one. I, I actually reached out to a company uh, about a certain photo, a private company, and they put me in charge. They 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 connected me to their lawyer, their corporate lawyer, and then their lawyer had to review, you know, parts of the book and all this kind of stuff, and it took forever. So I finally said, you know, just forget it. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. <laughs> but, you know, it was just over an old photo. Um, so some... But uh, most of the time, you know, certainly in the museum and the archives and, you know, at the Library of Congress, you got, you got, you can use those. And so, uh, so I look at, a, you know, a gazillion photos and they're, to me, they're all a treasure. And, um, and, and you just say, okay, this is a story. Um, I want to, I want to tell it with the photos. And the publisher was great because usually what happens in my first two books, they just do like a centerfold where they, they put the photos in the middle and they're in you know and they're in order. But if you're reading the book and you get halfway and then you look at the photos, it kind of ruins the last half because you just saw all the photos. Well, th- this publisher allowed me not only to have 60 photos, which is a lot of photos, um, they allowed me to place them where it's Pertinent in the text, so uh, so as you're reading, you, you look up and you see the photo that matches, you know, the text of the book, and which is great um, because if I'm telling you about, you know, a three-hour brunch of of you know ham and Virginia ham and and baked Alaska and all that, there's a photo of guys in you know white coats and gloves serving this you know, buffet, you know and and on and on and and um, so the photos I think are a real treat, and um, at least for me because in m- my first two books I think I had a dozen photos and sixty photos, and um, and they're all crisp and clear and you know they tell a lot of story. I even have a photo of that I got from a, a Japanese um, museum of that was taken by a Japanese pilot coming in to attack the Hong Kong clipper and the actual bullets being fired at it. So I got it. And, um, you know, that's a pretty rare photo, uh, as well. So, well, it's a beautiful
1: book. The cover's uh, really pretty as well. Uh, did they? Did you go? Did they send you the cover, the publisher, and you say you hit the nail on the head, or was there an evolution on what ended up being the cover? There,
2: it was a little. It was a little evolution, not a lot. Um, I think we did in a couple of days. I had a photo. Um, uh, I had the photo of that plane and everything that's on the cover, and it was actually in color. Uh, there weren't many color photos. Um, And of course, all the photos in the book are black and white. But so I had this beautiful cover, um, what I thought would be a cover photo, and I sent it to them. And I and my agent and I had worked on the title. And, you know, I had kicked around hiding in the sky uh, and he's like, well, what about this? And then we ended up stranded in the sky. So my agent and I worked out the title and. And came up with a subtitle, which subtitles are so funny. They're so long, but they, they have to tell kind of what the book's about, you know. Uh, so uh, I send the photo to the editor at the publisher. And I'm like, hey, this is what I'd, I'd like for us to use this photo. Here's the title. Here's a subtitle. What do you think? And they come back, you know, and they're like, yeah, great. Um, let me give this to our art guy and we'll get back to you. And they get back and the art person had the clever idea to make it look old, um, you know, and to to have the background as a Japanese flag, you know, with the the sun, the beams of sun coming out. And so um, I'm like, yeah, OK, can we and then I'm like, can we add a banner with the subtitle? Like, yeah. So he comes back and he's got one. And then I'm like, yeah, it looks good. looks good. I'm like, but it looks like they're just flying over San Francisco, you know, it doesn't really, I said, can we add like little planes? And I drew these little planes, like, (laughs) you know, and I sent it to him. Well, he did something better, but he used the idea and put these like Japanese zeros coming in, even though they weren't attacking the plane over San Francisco, but it gives the reader more of a a picture. So yeah, it was a process, but they were very, um, very uh, open, to my suggestions and that just depends on the publisher. You know, um, sometimes you get one that's like, "Yeah, this is it. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And they're like, but yeah, this looks good. You know, or we had our committee of people, you know, whatever. Uh, so, but yeah, I was very proud of, of the cover. And it's interesting that you can see the terminal, the exact building where I'm going to be saturday in on the cover um you know and um uh, that's very exciting i had someone email me today whose uh father was on the uh anzac clipper and she said i cannot believe i'm so excited this lady's probably around 80. she's like i cannot believe that i'm going to be in the same building that my father walked in you know in 1941 and so it means a lot to certain people and it does to me as well
1: oh yeah and i mean this is things like this make history come to life you know that's why yeah. books like this are so important I wish you luck on your big opening event. I'm sure you'll be posting pictures on uh, Facebook so we can see.
2: Oh yeah, oh uh, yeah.
1: See what happens. I'm excited to see that. I know how important a good, successful book launch is. So, so good luck on that. And if anybody wants to buy the book, uh, they can go to Amazon. And fortunately, there aren't enough. There aren't a lot of similar titles, so you can just search "Stranded in Uh the Sky" and it comes right up.
2: Yeah, it's also available at. Other places as well, like Walmart, Barnes and Noble, Target, you know. But, you know, I'm kind of an Amazon guy, but I try not to plug anyone. And of course, your independent pub, uh, bookstores as well um, couldn't get it for you. But fortunately, it's available. It's like the, 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 Wording wherever books are sold, you know, kind of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's in Kindle, hardcover, and paperback. Is that it right?
2: is? You know, that's that's another great thing. You know, because usually you got to go one to the next to the next, and this time we had a shotgun approach: a hardcover, paperback, ebook. You know, and uh, there's some talk about an audio version, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Are you thinking about what the next book is going to be about? Not only am I thinking about it, I've already, already written the first draft. Um, and I've taken the last two months off, uh, to let it sit. You know, it's kind of like cooking. You, you cook the book and then you let it simmer for a while. You want to extract yourself and your mind from it. And then you want to come back and approach it and, and see how it feels to you again, you know, um, and this book is unusual for me. And, you know, we'll see if it's, uh, going to be good or a flop. It's fiction. I've, you know, so I've gone from three and, uh, nonfiction books, uh, two true crime, one historical nonfiction, to a totally fictional book uh, that I had a blast writing, and um, my agent was like, no, 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 you know, this is not the way you do it, you know, we're branding you as nonfiction, kind of like Eric Larson, Eric Larson Jr., you know, and I'm like, eh, that's okay, but you know, I'm really doing this for fun. And and I'm getting a tad bored uh, writing the nonfiction, and I want to try my hand at fiction. And if it's a bust, then I'll go back to nonfiction. So I've written this book, and it it involves um, a couple things that my life has encountered that I've incorporated, which most fiction writers do. First of all, It involves kidnapping, of course, from my first two books, (laughs) involves an international kidnap negotiator, which these guys usually are coming out of Lloyd's of London, and they go about the world and negotiate ransoms that none of us know about. Um, And sometimes they put themselves in harm's way. Um, And it also introduces you to the equestrian world uh, at Palm Beach, where... um, I've been involved in the last few years, and uh, the person who's kidnapped is an equestrian uh, of a wealthy individual down there because you know the usually the children of like Bill Gates, Bruce Springsteen, you know, um, who all these, you know, even Tom Brady's uh, daughters down there now. So it's like a who's who of, of famous um, uh, kids of famous parents. So anyway, the book starts with a kidnapping from that and, and, you know, ends up involving several countries and super yachts and it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, it's about time for you to have another book signing, uh, here in union city. For those who don't know, uh, Philip was the uh, valedictorian of (laughs) O'Brien County central high school. So, uh, you have a lot of friends here, I know. And so I do get get ready to promote that book. Why don't you, uh, make a plan to stop by here at
2: discovery park and have a book signing party. I would love to do that. Let's we'll talk about that. I would love to do that. I always like to come home and yeah, you know, uh, I grew up in Sandburg, for those who, you know, at Realfoot Lake, and um, went to Hornbeak Elementary School, went to Obion County Central, and then on, um, and feel like, you know, I I still cherish um, that childhood. I had a lot of opportunities to do fun things as a kid uh, that my kids have not had living in a big city suburb. Um, so yeah, you know it's still my mom still says when you're coming home, uh, even though I haven't been there since I was 18. But uh, yeah, it's still home.
1: And this particular book uh, that we've been talking about is dedicated to your sister, I noticed.
2: It is yes, my sister passed away in September uh, suddenly, and and um, yeah, that was uh, that was tough for all of us. And uh, you know, because I keep thinking I'm a young man. And, uh, you know, everybody else seems to counter that, but yeah, it's dedicated to my sister Paulette and, um, And, uh, you know, I'm running out of people to dedicate I'm keep writing books. I, I'm going to have to get my dog in there before long.
1: (laughs) You can dedicate the next one to discovery park of America.
2: Oh, there you go. All right. You know, well, thank you.
1: Thank you so much for, uh, talking to us about your book and thank you so much for writing it. Cause I think, you know what, things like that, some, some unsuspecting young person may pick that book up and decide to fall in love with history.
2: Well, you, you never know. And you know, it's, it's, it's fun for me, and and this one was almost a privilege, uh, especially when you meet these people that I'm going to be seeing in San Francisco. I mean, they, you know, their parents were a part of history, and they are so proud of them. And um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate your kind words, and um, we'll see how it goes, you know, um, and and then we'll try out the fiction and see how that goes. Well, I'll, I'll buy that one too. Oh, you're nice. Thank you, Luke. And thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And Discovery Park of America doesn't get better than that. I can tell you.
1: Amen to that. And thank you to all you listeners who've joined us today at Discovery Park of America. Our mission here is to inspire children and adults to see beyond. To plan an experience here for you and your family, visit discoveryparkofamerica.com.